This is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Support the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast by pledging on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing for free audiobooks and bonus episodes. In today's episode, we will be hearing from Nadine Slavinsky, author of Pacific Crossing Notes, about sailing the Northwestern Society Islands of Huihini, Raiatea, Taha, Bora Bora, and Maputi. So I'm getting excited about the trip uh, that we're going to have in May 2018 that's going to include a cruise of the Northern Society Islands. And on that trip, we'll also go to Tonga. So we may hear from Nadine Slavinsky either in a bonus episode or a future episode about cruising Tonga. This episode is brought to you in part by the Fluid Plus Form 4K Action Camera. It's a Wi-Fi enabled and smart app camera with a 2.4 gigabyte remote control and long lasting batteries. You definitely will want to check it out if you're thinking about doing underwater photography on your boat and definitely take a look at it on Amazon.com if you are thinking of buying a much more expensive GoPro. I'm tired of hearing the fake cruising stories of fake sharks and fake storms and not actually visiting places because that's what cruising is all about. It's about visiting places. Uh, And that's why I'm making as a bonus episode the conversation Ms. Appel had with the Coast Guard uh, and not a regular episode. I'm eager to talk to real cruisers to learn from them, not people that say they never stop at ports. Still, we want to resolve the cliffhanger as much as we can about the mystery of that voyage, and so I'm going to read a blog that I wrote on my uh, slowboatsailing.wordpress.com blog. You can also get it at slowboatsailing.com. We've written a lot of this stuff we've done. Uh, I've done a lot of original reporting on this incident and getting real sources like the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Coast Guard, uh, Kiribati's authorities to try to confirm as much as this strange story that we've covered in the last three episodes of the podcast as possible. But I I think that there's going to be a gap in time personally where we get any more concrete news about the trip, and I'll comment on that at the end of the blog that I read. First, let's have another word from our sponsor, Mantis Anchors. And you can get their gear at mantismarine.com or other fine retailers. Why don't you tell me about how you came up with the swivel? So people, they like to use them. And we would notice and explain to them a lot of the weaknesses that exist that, you know, with the swivels that were on the market and kind of make sure that they understood those cautions and saying, yeah, swivels have a function, but you're weighing that, you know, what you're gaining versus the risks that you're taking on the other hand. So you have to consider every situation on whether you really want to be utilizing the swivel or not. And I think that we just saw kind of like there's a need in the marketplace for something that was a better design and something more reliable. We use the innovative heavy duty Mantis swivel on our boat. Exclusive. 
the last voyage of the SV Sea Nymph, as reported to the U.S. Coast Guard by Linus Wilson. Position reports tell the story that the doomed SV Sea Nymph made good less than one nautical mile per hour for a period of 97 days downwind between June 26, 2017 and October 1, 2017. This contradicts the assertion by Jennifer Appel to reporters that her boat could sail four to five miles per hour. Ms. Appel submitted these position reports to the U.S. Coast Guard, USCG, on October 27, 2017, in a satellite phone call obtained by Slowboat Sailing through a Freedom of Information Act request, FOIA. There are approximately 2,200 nautical miles between position 18 and 19 in the figure above. According to Ms. Appel, it took her 45-foot sailboat with an upright mast and a working rudder 97 days to go the distance. The 31-foot slowboat, for example, covered 3,500 nautical miles in just 27 days. You can see that trip on our YouTube channel. Slowboat sailing has exclusively obtained the strange track of the SVC nymph before its crew of two women and two dogs were rescued 900 miles southeast of Japan by the U.S. Navy on October 25, 2017. These are positions which were reported to the U.S. Coast Guard by the owner of the SVC nymph, a 45-foot Starrett and Jenks sailboat. The audio of the survivor debrief of Jennifer Apple with the U.S. Coast Guard was obtained by the author through a Freedom of Information Act request FOIA and can be heard on the bonus episode to episode 43. Ms. Appel spoke to an interviewer from the U.S. Coast Guard's 14th District in Honolulu on board the USS Ashland, a Navy ship, on October 27, 2017. Ms. Appel said that she had hoped to have a three-week passage to Tahiti from her home port of Honolulu with her crew member, Tasha Fuiva, who had never sailed before. Then she said that the SVC nymph moved generally due south between 155 and 157 west longitude from May 5, 2017 to May 26, 2017. The only major deviation from this course as reported by Ms. Appel was the circling of Christmas Island Kiribati. Ms. Appel told Slowboat Sailing that she lacked charts for Christmas Island Kiribati, the Northern Cooks, and Wake Island that would have let her see the depths in those anchorages. Thus, her only source of harbor information was unreliable VHF calls. Christmas Island and Penarin in the Northern Cooks both had sufficient channel and anchorage depths for the SVC nymph, according to the charts, which were examined by Slowboat Sailing. On May 26, 2017, Ms. Appel decided it would be too hard to enter any one of the atolls in the Northern Cook Islands. She said that she lacked charts for those islands, and by that time, the boat's motor would no longer start. The sea nymph turned around a little over 100 miles north of the port of entry Penryn Atoll in the Cook Islands. She said after that, the sailboat was then bound for Honolulu. Until June 26, 2017, her boat headed due north between 156 and 159 west longitude until they were within 750 miles south of Honolulu, Hawaii. For reasons that are not clear, Ms. Appel steered the boat west until it passed Wake Island on October 2, 2017 local time. Ms. Appel has said 
little about their path over those 97 days. During that period, she told the U.S. Coast Guard officers that she set off flares and made VHF distress calls but did not activate her EPIRB. The accuracy of this map depends on the veracity of Ms. Appel's position reports to the USCG. Slow boat sailing has only been able to verify points 2, 14, 19, and 20 with independent sources besides Ms. Appel. At point 2, the U.S. Coast Guard said it responded to her Mayday call with an aircraft, but it left the scene when she said her vessel was okay. There is a one-day discrepancy between the Marine Guard Station on Christmas Island Kiribati Position 14 said they spoke to the CNIMP, and when Jennifer Apple says they spoke. Jennifer Apple says they spoke to the calling station on May 17th. The Christmas Island Marine Guard said they spoke on May 18th and continued to hail the CNIMP with no response on May 19th because she gave them incomplete information on the May 18th conversation. The officials in Kiribati told Slow Boat Sailing they even had records of the CNIMP's call sign. On October 1st, 2017 Honolulu time, or October 2nd, 2017 local Wake Island time, the U.S. Air Force confirmed to Slow Boat Sailing that the CNIMP by VHF requested a tow at Wake Island, but could not be located. At point 20, which is approximate, the USS Ashland, rescued the CNIMP crew 900 miles southeast of Japan. Ms. Appel has made several statements that have proved untrue. Ms. Appel said in the past that she faced a Force 11 storm leaving Honolulu, but weather data found no such winds or storm activity in the area. She said she saw sharks bigger than were ever recorded in an area she called the Devil's Triangle, which is a geographic region that does not exist. She claimed that her boat was 50 feet long to journalists, but has since conceded on the Slow Boat Sailing podcast episode 42 that it was a 45-foot long boat. Some parts of the journey are in dispute. The USCG told the Associated Press that it hailed the CNIMP on June 15, 2017, which responded that it would be arriving in Tahiti the next day. In contrast, Ms. Appel told the USCG that Point 14 on the figure, 6 south and 157 west, was the closest her boat got to its planned destination of Tahiti. The USCG Honolulu has told Slow Boat Sailing that it has no plans to investigate the circumstances of the SVC Nymph rescue. The closest path between the 20 numbered points in the figure is about 6,000 nautical miles. The speed of the Sea Nymph on the first two days was over five nautical miles per hour, and the trip to Christmas Island Kiribati averaged over four nautical miles per hour. From May 17, 2017 to June 10, 2017, the, bo- the boat's reported speed fell to about two nautical miles per hour. Between June 10, 2017 and the VHF radio contact with Wake Island on October 1st, Honolulu time, Point 17, 18, and 19, the sea nymph averaged less than one nautical mile per hour, as reported by Ms. Appel to the USCG. Since the longest leg of the trip, 2,200 nautical miles from points 18 and 19, was downwind, the author finds that boat speed very slow and only consistent with a craft completely adrift. Nevertheless, Ms. Appel disputed that her boat 
was not a drift in her GoFundMe appeal from November 25th, 2017. We were not a drift. A drift denotes that we had no ability to steer, which fails to account for our ability to circle Christmas Island, leave the Dragon's Triangle, almost return to Hawaii, or navigate over 2,000 miles from our failed attempt to return to Hawaii to reach 7.4 kilometer Wake Island. To the author, these slow reported speeds of less than one knot raise the possibility that the CNIP stopped somewhere between May 18, 2017 and October 1, 2017 Honolulu time. Those were two points that slow boat sailing has confirmed where the CNIP hailed Christmas Island and the U.S. Air Force respectively. The maximum haul speed of the CNIP based on the 32.5 foot waterline length reported in sailboatdata.com for the Starhead and Jenks 45 is 7.6 knots. That indicates that the Sea Nymph could reach Wake Island from Tahiti about 2,400 nautical miles in less than two weeks. Thus, if the reports of the USCG hailing the Sea Nymph near Tahiti on June 15, 2017 are true, then the crew would have had plenty of time to anchor and go ashore at several different ports prior to reaching Wake Island on October 2nd, 2017 local time. The CNIMP's reported speed picked up to 1.7 knots between the confirmed locations of Wake Island and the crew's eventual rescue 900 miles southeast of Japan. In the survivor debrief, the USCG expressed surprise and dismay that Ms. Appel did not pull her EPIRB when she started setting off flares and hailing passing ships for a tow beginning on June 26, 2017. Ms. Appel told the USCG that she was not truly in danger until after they obtained a tow from the Taiwanese fishing vessel on October 24, 2017. On that date, Ms. Appel swam out to the fishing vessel and called for a rescue by way of the fishing vessel's satellite phone. The Taiwanese government has disputed Ms. Apple's allegations that the fishing vessel posed a danger to the women. This episode is brought to you in part by the Sail Timer Wind Instrument. Advanced features with a low price. You can get $5 off your next Sail Timer Wind Instrument for a limited time by going to sailtimerwind.com dot com slash slowboat sailing. The sail timer wind instrument is a wireless solar powered masthead anemometer. It works with lots of navigation and charting apps. You can raise it from deck level if your boat is in the water and it has lots of other cool innovations too. Check out our website and see how it works and get a discount while supporting slowboat sailing. All right, here's the interview with Pacific Crossing Notes author Nadine Slavinsky. All right, so let's start out by you saying your name and the name of the people you cruise the Pacific with and the name of your boat. Nadine Slavinsky of sailing vessel Namani, um, sailing with my husband Marcus and my son Nikki. Okay, so, so last time we talked about 
your trip to the Marquesas and through the Marquesas, my reason for calling you is that, uh, number one, I like all your entries in the free cruising guide, the Soggy Paws guide. I always uh, appreciate <laughs> the people that have contributed to that. And uh, I also have your book, which is Pacific Crossing Notes, which I love. Uh, but I wanted to hear your take on your trip of the Pacific. And since we didn't get to hear all of it last time on episode four, uh, I wanted to preview the parts of the trip that I planned to do in the summer of 2018. Perfect. That sounds great. Currently, my boat is in Tahiti, and we visited Morea while we were in Tahiti. Uh, but next summer we plan to go to the Society Islands. Uh, why don't you tell me about your trip to the Society Islands? Yeah, um, like you, I guess we started in Tahiti with a short trip to Morea because it's so close and we loved it. Um, and then we did an overnight to, um, to Raiatea um, and we went between Raiatea, backtracked a little bit to Wahine, and then up eventually over to Bora Bora and Malpiti, all the way on the western end of the Society Islands. I guess there's one more. Um, if you go another, I think it's another 100 miles to the west is Malpelia. Um, all the way at the western end of the Society Islands is a little uh, atoll called Malpelia. Um, and very few people go there, and we were among the boats that passed it up. It's got quite a tricky entrance, um, and unfortunately, the, the clock was ticking. So, but we really enjoyed um, Bora Bora, Wahini, uh, and especially uh, Malpiti. Okay, that's cool, because I, I was interested in uh, Malpiti, and I didn't know many people stopped there. You know, I think it's getting to be less and less of a... A secret or an unknown gem um, because there are I mean there were maybe only a dozen boats there while we were there but recently there was even a cruising world feature article on Malpiti um, and you, and I see more and more pictures of it um, just they pop up on the internet so more and more people are going there and for good reason it's 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 incredible it's uh, it's a little slightly miniature version of Bora Bora with just the incredible central peak and um, lagoon all around just gorgeous but no tourists. I think there are three hotels and you can't see any of them. They're just, they look like houses, like where they're hidden behind trees. Um, and it's just a sleepy little place kind of lost in time. It's just, just amazing. Well, it, it looks like it has a really good channel from the charts. That It's like yep. very well marked, although it doesn't look that wide. They've it's got a little breaker on it. Right, they have, it's a kind of a dog-like entrance and they have, um, you can line yourself up with the, the markers on land. So it's actually pretty straightforward. Um, you maybe hold your breath a little bit going in because most of the other passes up to that point are prob that you've done in the rest of the Society Islands probably were much wider. But um, the only thing is you have to have, you can't have too much of a swell from the south or I want to say southwest. Um, I have to check, I have to double check myself. Um, but you need the swell not to be too bad and not to be from a certain direction. Otherwise, it, be, it does become impassable. And I have heard of boats getting stuck in there for three weeks at a time. But it is probably the best place in the world to get stuck. <laughs> and there's water and you, you can buy groceries and everything. So um, 
it, it's something to go in with a little bit of respect and care to check the conditions ahead of time and make sure that you're not going in on a ridiculous swell. But otherwise, it's not that big a deal. Once you get in, the lagoon has a lot of small coral heads. So you really have to, you do want to go in when there's good visibility. And you once you're in, it's not over because you still, some people anchor just inside the pass because there's great snorkeling there. And other people go ahead to the village and they anchor off the village, which is what we did. And on that way, I think that's maybe another, maybe two nautical miles. I'm going off memory and I didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't note this down in my notes. But in case, there's little coral heads all the way. Um, and when you anchor, you have to be careful to find yourself a nice spot that you're not going to swing. The boat next to us swang, swang, swung <laughs> onto um, a coral head. Uh, it didn't do any tremendous damage, but it's, it's not what you want to do. So um, it's not crazy difficult, but um, you do want decent visibility when you go in. Yeah, I just just looking at the Navionics charts on my phone, and it, it seems to say that they don't, allow you to anchor anymore that they've changed the policy since 2016 and you're supposed to use their moorings but then they are also charged for the moorings well that's unfortunately we were there um so i i can't speak to that um that's newer than i know because we were there several years previous to that so yeah i guess soggy paws and the coconut grapevine is your is where you you're you're on the cutting edge right now linus (laughs) you know more than most people do in Fakarava, they they were trying to encourage people to use the moorings more, and they had free moorings, but I don't think they required it yet. Uh, but And I'd certainly not heard of any place in the Society Islands where they require you to use a mooring and you have to pay for it. So that's a bummer. Yeah, but yeah, it would be good to find out more about that. But really, I, I, you know, whatever they would charge is worth it. It's, well, I would say it is... It is just, it is one of the highlights of our three-year trip. Um, it's its the picture we have blown up on the kitchen wall now that we're back home. It's just an amazing place. We spent, I think, three weeks there and could barely drag ourselves away. Oh, cool. Do they have uh, fuel in uh, Malpiti? Yes. It's, everything obviously is expensive in Society Islands, and it's going to be even more expensive. And the trick... The, the tricky thing about Mapiti is it's out on the west, which means technically you have to go back to Bora Bora to clear out of the Society Islands. And going back to Bora Bora means going back against the wind, or at least the prevent prevailing winds. We, when we, before we left Tahiti, and your boat is still in Tahiti, I went and got the document you need to get uh, duty-free fuel on the way out. And that would turn out to be a good thing because once um, we got to Bora Bora, so we, we, we worked our way across the islands, eventually got to Malpiti, waited for a quiet day to backtrack to Bora Bora to do our checkout and to top up with fuel because it's a little bit cheaper than Malpiti. And the boat that went for fuel at the same time of us, uh, they did not have that document, that exit document, and they paid a lot more. They did not get the duty free. So um, it's definitely worth getting that that departure documents from and I think at, the, at that point you could only get it in Tahiti you could not get it in Bora Bora uh, there are other people who they just they want to sail westward so they do their clear out in Bora Bora and they stop illegally in Malpiti we did not want to try that and it sounds to me that if they're doing moorings then 
is that much more on the radar that will be that much harder to get away with um but i think then you'd want to check what the latest is whether the gendarme in um Alpiti are actually offering checkout now who knows that could have changed um if they've gone so far as to put in moorings um but like i said that that's so new uh unfortunately i can't tell you about that is there good hiking in Mapiti? it sounds like there's awesome snorkeling and diving exactly so this fantastic snorkeling diving the the lagoon is all around you and you can just snorkel anywhere and go up to any of the motus the outlying islands and snorkel but actually for us the highlight was the land um, you can hike up the peak so if you're picturing i think everybody can picture uh, bora bora very easily exactly like that just a mountain that comes straight up out of nowhere and you can hike up it um took us less than an hour and we did it with kids i think the youngest was five it gets a little steep near the top it's a good trail all the way up it gets a little steep and there's a rope that you can kind of it's not like you're climbing up a rope the rope is there to you kind of keep a hand on it while you're going up the rocks and it helps you get back down um, so there's one little kind of breathtaking part near the top but it we don't do ridiculously risky things with our son um and we easily made it up there and you just have just a jaw-dropping view just the lagoon all around you and you can see Bora Bora in the distance and of course you look out to the west and think about where you're going next and it's really quite incredible and in addition to that so the island has a circular road that goes around on the coast um, so you can walk around the island our friends had uh, bikes that they loaned us and we had just an amazing bike ride looking at one point the road goes up a little bit and you get that view over the whole lagoon and it's kind of like this lattice work of corals and it's it's just stunning and there's nobody there's nobody there i mean not to say there's nobody there i think they have a thousand inhabitants but we walked, biked around the island and we were the only people on the far shore and everything you do you feel like it's just you and two other boats at least when we were there oh that sounds um, awesome you know i think one of the things that uh, surprised me about Morea was how busy that island is. That it's a, it's got a lot of traffic on its roads. I was getting so used to being on islands with nobody on the roads. And uh, it, I think it's different in some of the society islands. They're much more populated than the Marquesas. But it sounds like uh, Malpiti has all that kind of nice bit that you're kind of remote but you also have the beauty of the societies. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Mora and Tahiti are lovely if you haven't seen the other islands. Um, because then cruise ships and they have a big international airport and Mora and Tahiti that it spills over. And once you get to the other islands, of course, Bora Bora is very popular. And unfortunately, I wouldn't say it's spoiled by the development, but you, don't, you look across the lagoon and basically all you see is the roofs of the, these really expensive hotels built on stilts. Um, and they're just everywhere. And it was still lovely. I mean, we love Bora Bora, but Malpiti is that, has those views, that landscape without the tourists. Like I said, you literally could not recognize the hotel. And there's a couple little tiny, tiny little shops where you can just get basics. It's not the place I would reprovision before I left the Society Islands, but you can definitely get by. There's uh, water spigots right on land, and it's, it was free. You just go up and, and we asked he said yeah just free just go ahead and use it kind of like it was in the Marquesas in some places and drinkable water beautifully drinkable water so Malpiti in many ways really has it all and it has 
that um, there's an anchorage near the entrance, um, and there's a manta ray cleaning station out there. So it's um, you go and snorkel, and you see they they keep circling back to the same spots, and it's where all the little fish come up and clean them. You know? Wow. Uh, oh, it's just it's really nice. This the other place that's a really unknown is Wahine. It's for kind of the first place you would get to on your way from Morea going westward, right? So it goes Tahiti, Morea, then there's a bigger gap of, I think, 60 miles or maybe 80 miles to Wahine. For us, it was overnight passage. So when you look at it on the map, and my terrible uh, Polynesian pronunciation, I would have said Huahine, but if you say the correct pronunciation is Wahine. Uh, it starts <laughs> with an H. <laughs> It's, it's the way everybody was saying it, and that's the way my ear and my tongue can reproduce it. And maybe if you ask a local, they'll say it slightly differently, but basically it's wah. Yeah, wah for me. Okay, great. Um, Raiatea has, again, more boats, and there's a charter basis and so on, but still, Wahini, because you have to go a little bit against the wind from Raiatea to get there, so if you're going from Morea to Wahini, it's with the wind, easy. But most people who are flying in from overseas to do charters and such are going into Raiatea and for them it's against the wind to go back to Wahini so Wahini some is very pleasant it's not many hotels dirt roads um, just very laid back um, not quite as spectacularly stunning once you get spoiled by the absolute superlatives of Polynesia but we, we absolutely I would say it was, it was our second favorite place just for that really nice laid back feel to it yeah, I, I did think, like, Moray was pretty crowded. I was in the high season, but it was really hard to get to the the favorite anchorages. There were plenty of anchorages. There were plenty of places to anchor in Morea, but, you know, in kind of the snorkeling anchorages, we found that just really packed full. And sounds like uh, Wahine, you can anchor in some pretty nice spots uh, yes. and have plenty of room. The place where you enter the pass on the west side of the island is Faro. It's, and there it's kind of tricky. There's quite a few boats and it's deep water. We just made it a day stop because they have great, great supermarket. Huge supermarket. Not as big as the Carrefour or the you know the mega markets that you see Tahiti, but the biggest place we saw west of actual Tahiti. So we made it kind of a pit stop there. And then you continue inside the lagoon due south um, to the southern tip of uh, Wahini, but you're inside the lagoon. And there's one or two hotels there, but they're kind of, they're low key. It's not these bungalows that are built up everywhere. And there's plenty of space to anchor in there and nice snorkeling. And again, not maybe not superlative, superlative, but just relaxing and convenient um, and really nice bike rides and walks. Um, so we really did enjoy Wahini as well. Yeah, that first bay seems to have like Oh, oh no, that's like 112 foot depths. So some some really high depths. I think that was one of the things that with Morea you've got some really deep anchorages. Yes, all of the islands have that. Well, Piti did. We had very reasonable depths. Um, I don't. I could look it up. I don't have it at my fingertips. That yeah, was I was looking at the chart. It Piti was like 10 foot depths. Just kind of like ideal. Yeah, like 20 foot maybe, yeah. And Bora Bora, again, you have that problem as well. All over, there's deep anchorages and it's difficult. So Malpiti's nice for that. That southern inner anchorage of Wahini was also very reasonable depth. 
not Faro, not that the town, but it, like I said, it's a really good pit stop, and there were eggs. <laughs> if you see eggs, buy them, <laughs> because they it's like every they get sold out the day they come in. Uh, like in Bora Bora, I the, the eggs had just come in the day we were checking out, and everybody's running to get the eggs. So. <laughs> Um, and I remember why you, know, you could get eggs easily. So it stands out in my mind. So it was worth, worth the stop for us. And all over, there's a lot of the other islands, Rayatea, Taha. They have some very, very deep places. But they also have a lot of space places that aren't, I would definitely say, go off the beaten path. So for example, when we sailed from Wahine to Rayatea, so it's like a day trip, straight across to the west, there's several passes that cut into the lagoon in Riotea from the west side. They all lead to Riotea itself, to the, the main central island. But as soon as you get into lagoon, you can hang a right. So you're barely through the pass. You hang a right or a left, and there's some lovely anchorages, just like a mile of sand just inside the reef. And there's not much to do there because you're just anchored far away from land. You just It's just a reef sticking up that's protecting you from the ocean. But we spent a couple of just incredible nights just right there and all night you hear the surf but it's perfectly calm where you are and you can snorkel it was more like it was a spectacular snorkeling but we just had a fun time in the water um if you have a young child you probably don't gonna not spend days and days because it's all water play but no land immediately there but like i said as, as you come in those passes in riotea you can just pick your spot and at first we were kind of going off the cruising guides and looking for Ha, ah, that's an anchorage that people talk about, and that's an anchorage. And then we realized, well, you can just go up to the reef. Um, of course, you have to be careful, but um, there's some really, really nice spots just inside the reef there. Um, and you're talking about Taha right now. Okay, right now I'm talking about it, and I can even name it. So, um, first off, I was just talking about Rayatea. Okay, yeah. The Charter yeah. Base. Exactly right. So there are several passes that come into the lagoon on the east side of Raiatea. Okay. Yeah. And um, is called Motu Tipemau, Motu Tipemau, and that's one that we picked. We went through, we hung a right, and we anchored, and it was just bliss. It was it was really nice. But that's certainly not the only one. There are several other little cuts in, but many people seem to sail in and then keep sailing up across the lagoon to the edge of the actual island, the big island of Raiatea. But it's really nice to just stay out there by the reef. And again, and those are not super deep spots. There's nice sandy bottom, not super deep. It seems like there's uh, maybe some reef above ground. So there's a lot of reefs that you kind of submerge, but it seems like there's a reef that is uh, not a wash. And all the way, it's a lagoon, right? And it's it's clearly a wash all the way around, high tide, low tide, whenever you can always see. It. There's a there's a straight line that yeah. you draw with pencil, and some right. of it sticks above ground, uh, above the waterline. It's always above the waterline, um, and it just it's almost like you you built a wall out there to protect the island. Yeah, and as soon as you get in, and all the islands are like that. Um, and the same with Malpiti. You once you get in there, it's just like you're in a lake, but you're in the middle of the ocean because nothing is visually blocking you from the ocean but the reef is protecting you from the swell so you still get the wind so your wind jenny is going you still get nice fresh air you get the you don't get that feeling of being kind of bogged in somewhere it's 
it re- it's a really special place, the Society Islands. Did you do a lot of land travel in Raiatea or Taha or Huahini? In Wahini, we biked around the island, um, and it's quite a big island. Um, actually, we didn't bike around the whole island, but you, if you, you could spend quite a lot of time there and not get bored. Raiatea is a little, little busier, uh, busy enough with narrow enough roads that um, we did some yard work because there's a couple of yards there. Um, we, we painted the bottom. We got hauled out to paint the bottom. So for us, personally, Raiatea was a work stop. Taha, we made a couple of stops and had really nice snorkeling. There's a coral place called Coral Gardens in Taha. Really nice snorkeling there with a view of Bora Bora. But it's basically all the islands. You can't go wrong on any of the islands. You just want to always keep your eyes open because the lagoons, even though they're beautiful, nice lagoons, navigable lagoons are some isolated coral heads. Um, so you just want to always keep your eyes open, not, not fall asleep and not trust the electronic charge. Well, on our August 2017 podcast, uh, we our guests uh, wrecked their boat in Uihini. So, <laughs> so yes, there are there are hazards. <laughs> and it's uh, yeah, my heart goes out to them. But honestly, you you can't you can't do that. You can't sail at the edge of the you need to give yourself miles of berth at night miles build in five miles i would go around maybe three miles around the edge of an island and not be thinking about doing anything at night we sailed from morea to wahini at night to get there uh at daybreak yeah and then by the time you actually get ready to get to the pass it's 10 o'clock 11 o'clock the sun is high you cannot you be You'd be foolish. You will pay the price. I, some sooner or later, I believe you will pay the price to count on your electronics and nothing else. Um, we did paper charts all across um, French Polynesia, and we we kept our eyes open. Um, and I really, the only place in the Pacific we really could not do that, where we had to go to electronic charts, was Fiji, which we can talk about later for, or some other time. But there we had a set of waypoints that had been handed down from cruiser to cruiser that were triple checked and quadruple checked um, and even so we weren't too too happy doing it but yeah you, you can't you cannot go below decks you always need somebody up on deck this is our kind of sailing sorry you know everybody can make their own choices but we always have somebody on deck they're not watching a movie they're only looking out um, we're checking the charts we're leaving a big margin of error um, so to protect ourselves and our boat and our son above all I guess yeah I, you know I, I I totally agree with everything you said I, I would say even if you are using electronic charts uh, you definitely want to go in the daytime so for instance uh, at the yard that we're currently at in Tahiti the entrance is a, a reef entrance it is marked uh, but it's got it's got kind of like a dog leg in it, several dog legs. And if you were there at night uh, using your electronic charts, it would be just very extremely dangerous. The electronic charts do help. They, they help you identify where you need to be, but you also need to see those breakers and, and other, other hazards that are out there. And I guess, and you're right, it's another tool, but to rely on them. And if you look at them, I mean, the electronic charts are based on the paper charts, and if you look at the paper charts, the paper charts are based on um, 
data that goes back to 1800s, right? In some cases, right? It hasn't been, no, like, especially when you get out to more like, I guess, more like Fiji. It hasn't been sounded that recently. Okay, Tahiti's probably a different story, but it, you'd be silly not to just, your best line of defense is your own set of eyes and your ears, right? And then just um, the common sense. Yeah, I think, you know, the challenge for me will be I want to spend a ton of time in the Society Islands, and I don't know if I have a ton of time. What were some of the things that you did in Bora Bora when you were there? Bora Bora entered. On the west side is the pass that you enter on. So you kind of, as you're coming from the other islands, you're usually coming from the east, and you circle around the south end, and you enter from the west. And that's where the main town is. And again, it's very deep, and you pretty much have to uh, rent a mooring for the night. And we did that just for one night, just to get our shopping. And then we circled inside the lagoon all the way around the island. So uh, we went from, if you picture up the face of a clock, you enter at nine o'clock. That's kind of where the pass comes in. And we sailed 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, new, you know, 12 at the top. And we keep, kept circling down around the other side, right? So we've circled that central peak all the way over to roughly five o'clock so on the southeast corner of Bora Bora's inner lagoon so to get the only way to get there is to do that to go almost all the way around because you can't cut the corner and do it on the on the other side and we spent a couple weeks there in that southeast corner of Bora Bora and that was just lovely they were for us we had we had a young child on board they we i think we had five boats with kids and they were just all anchored there and they would swim to each other's boats and have a nice time and the only trouble with Bora Bora is because there's so many tourists, the little motus, the little islands that pop up along the, the edge of the lagoon, a lot of them are, they're kind of quite sensitive about trespassers. So a lot of them, you cannot go on shore. So the kids could play kind of in the shallows, but they weren't even, we weren't even allowed on the beach in some places. And that kind of just goes with the turf because Bora Bora has so many visitors. But we still really enjoyed that spot. You're looking at Bora Bora, you know, that incredible peak, and you're swimming and snorkeling in this really nice water. The climbing that mountain is quite a climb that we did not do. Uh, some of our friends did it, but nobody with kids did it. Um, but great view. So for us, personally, Bora Bora was the snorkeling and kind of that play time that we really enjoyed on the southeast time, which is uh, southeast corner. Got a lot of homeschooling done, got a lot of reading, just really relaxing and enjoying. And to get there, however, so I described it as going around the top of a clock. So right at the top of Bora Bora, so you're inside the lagoon and it's nice and easy until about 12 o'clock. And then it gets really dodgy. <laughs> There's a, a really zigzag, almost a maze through a very shallow reef. Um, that kind of puts your heart in your throat for a short time. It's per it's marked, and boats do it all the time. But you barely have space. Like I don't, it, I would not want to try to pass a catamaran in that. Like it's like a catamaran could go through, but you don't want a catamaran and a monohull trying to go through at the same time. Like it's really there's one piece where it's really narrow. So you kind of just take it slow and you keep your eyes open and <laughs> you watch another boat go through first and you just pay attention to each of those exact turns. So it's perfectly doable. Again, we had a paper chart to reassure ourselves um, that what we, you know, to match up what we were seeing. Um, so there is that tricky moment at kind of the 12 o'clock mark at the north end of the lagoon inside Bora Bora. But then it opens up again, 
on that whole eastern side of Bora Bora is quite easy to sail down. And as you sail down, of course, you see those bungalow hotels everywhere, just everywhere. And they kind of thin out a little bit at the southeast corner, which is a really nice anchorage. Is most of your access beach access, or were they there were a lot of dinghy docks or public docks that you guys landed on? Um, in Wahini, at the at the southern at that southern anchorage, which is called Avea Bay, we just landed on the beach. In the town of Faro, where there's the supermarket is, there's a, a dock, a town dock, where you can leave your dinghy. Um, Rayatea. I think it was a mixture. I would say most of them are a mixture. So Bora Bora, we dinghied around, and then we had to use a dock uh, in the town part on the west side. And while PT also had a little, very small dock um, alongside. I think they actually, at some point, somebody actually dynamited a little mini pass through the very shallow, shallow coral that actually gets you to land on Malpiti. And that last little part is kind of dredged for there's their fishermen to get in and out too. It's very small. It's just a, it's just big enough for a dinghy to go through. Um, but then there's a little dock that you can yeah. Um, but I should say, um, for us, it was a big question mark before we set out whether to have, obviously a hard bottom dinghy is a really good thing to have because of all the coral, but we have a 35 foot sailboat, not a lot of space. So we, we had an inflatable dinghy and just taking care, not driving around Recklessly, we were fine, uh, and I, and you can absolutely do it all fine with um, an inflatable dinghy. So if, if that's the question somebody has, it was very much in our minds, um, but we absolutely very easily did everything with an inflatable dinghy. Well, we loved uh, using our hard-sided dinghy. Uh, so I used the the Walker Bay. We have two dinghies. We have a rib which does have an aluminum floor, and then a Walker Bay which is plastic. And the Walker Bay is a little bit more. Uh, robust if it gets scratched and scraped uh, just because it doesn't have the the inflatable sides and we use that I think exclusively I don't think we used uh, the rib the whole time the whole trip that we just had smaller loads uh, with the walker bay which has a little less capacity but we loved it and we also liked the fact that uh, it was a rowing dinghy and most of the anchorages were not big that was uh, Nadine Slavinsky, author of Pacific Crossing Notes. You can get her book on Amazon.com, as you can get my book, How to Sail Around the World Part-Time, or Slow Boat to Cuba, or Slow Boat to the Bahamas. All those make great digital stocking stuffers. All you need to do to gift a Kindle ebook on Amazon is have the recipient's email address. Ebooks make great last minute gifts and there's no shipping charges. But if you want to get the the hard copy version and you have your Amazon Prime membership, you still have some time at the time of this recording to get that to your favorite sailor. In January, I plan to bring you the interview with Nicole and Ryan from Two Afloat Sailing. Ryan has an inspirational story uh, that inspired the likes of Riley and Elena of Sailing La Vagabond. And we'll have both the audio for the podcast, but also a video interview of them in the monthly vlog, which will come out in early January on the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel. Ryan decided to 
give up his life and career and go on the cruise of his dreams while he still could as he battled with muscular dystrophy. If you like this podcast, write a rating or review on iTunes, and that helps get out the word. Everybody have a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Hanukkah, and have some fun on the water. Oh, and you might have noticed the new violin intro. Uh, Sophie wanted to be featured on the podcast, and Sophie, age seven, is playing Allegro by Suzuki in the intro and the transition. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com. This podcast episode and all prior podcast episodes and all videos and pictures produced by Slow Boat Sailing are copyrighted material and should not be used without the express written permission of Linus Wilson. You can email me at linuswilson at yahoo.com.